0: And then you can have a seat. If you would uh, turn with us in your Bibles this morning to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we will be in verses 1 through 14 this morning. I love that uh, last song that we just sang because it really is the story of what we've been talking about with Ecclesiastes. Um, Solomon sort of has this one main thesis that he laid out for us in the first chapter, and that is that life. Apart from God is meaningless, it's all vanity. And really, we find purpose in life when we sing those words. God, I need you. Every hour, in every single way, I need you. Um, Solomon, in an effort to help us understand that, uh, he's been sharing his wisdom with us, and so he set out to prove that life is empty under the sun without God. Um, He's done that by sort of exploring all of these different routes that really we all take when we're trying to find meaning in life apart from God. There are some of us that would try philosophy. Some of us would try the escape route of pleasure. Um, Some of us would try the escape route of work. Oftentimes we go to our goal is to sort of accumulate affluence or money. Some of us go to even just like more family to fill the emptiness that we might feel. We try wisdom in all of these ways that people attempt to fill up the void in their life. We've been talking about this now for seven weeks. Solomon says all of those things fail without God as our true means for satisfaction. You might ask the question, especially if you're joining us for the first time, well, how does this guy know? Well, let me tell you, Solomon isn't just speaking as some person that's been to college and now he has a degree, and so he can tell you about these theories that he's learned. He's not just speaking because he's some wise old sage. This is not an attempt by him to teach us something Solomon that he doesn't have experience in. Solomon is basing all of these things off of the reality that he tried to fill the void with everything you can think of. Solomon has been able, though, to experiencing, to experience all of these things that we try to think of to the max, right? Wealth, productivity, work, family, marriage, times a lot, um, pleasure in life that existed. Anything that you can think of, Solomon has tried. And not just a little, not just kind of, all of these things he has lived out in a, in a state of exceedingly beyond anything that 99.999999 forever could even imagine. In fact, nobody in this room even understands what Solomon experienced. And what Solomon concluded after trying out all of these different things... And we live in a world where we just try out stuff, right? How will I make myself satisfied? I'm going to try a thousand or a million or a billion different things. It's really like the source of most of our issues, probably all of them, right? What did Solomon conclude when he tried out all these different ways to fill his heart without God? He concluded that his experience, from his experience, that they all fail. All of these things fail in bringing satisfaction and contentment and joy. So, up to this point in Ecclesiastes, Solomon has really only explained one thing to us from a positive standpoint. Only one thing. Positively, he has told us that what truly supplies meaning to us in this life is knowing that God is good and acknowledging his providence. He says, Fear the Lord, but it's realizing that God is good, stand in awe of him, and acknowledge his providence that he has wisdom and foresight, and that he reigns above all of it. Today, Solomon's actually going to go back to the reality of God's providence again as he talks to us about wisdom and folly. Those who are wise see God's providence in life, and then those of us who maybe are foolish, we don't see God at work. I want you to hear me really clearly on this. In fact, if you're taking notes, I would write this down, that the key to understanding Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is this. We have to embrace the reality of God's providence. It is the key to living wisely in this life and to experiencing meaning in this life. As we read chapter 7 today, it's important for us to know that what Solomon is doing is he's going to present a series of opposites, a series of contrasts in order to teach us He's going to point out situations that we all find ourselves in in this fallen world. And what his goal is for us is to show us that true wisdom believes in the providence of God. It's madness for us to try and make sense of life apart from God. Let me start this morning by reading to us the last verse of chapter 6. It's verse 12, and it says this, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So the reason I would read that verse to us this morning is that Solomon is asking a question here that chapter 7 is going to answer. He's getting really practical here in chapter 6, and he's wondering how can we live well during our few and passing days on this earth? If all that Solomon is saying to be true is true, how do we live well in our few and passing days on this earth? I think we all ask questions like that. How do I live best on this earth? If life apart from God is meaningless, then how do we see God in our few days on this earth? And in chapter 7, he's going to answer this question by telling us that the meaning, com- meaning comes when we rely fully on the providence of God. Wisdom comes when, as Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, we believe that he has made everything beautiful in its time. He is in control. God is providential. What does Solomon have to say about this subject today? Well, let's start with verses 1 through 4 under the heading, Hard Things Encourage an Eternal Perspective. Hard things encourage an eternal perspective. It's important for us to know that this from the outset, that God's providence, or again, just so we have a definition for that, that God's providence or His foresight or His wisdom is sometimes hard for us to understand. Anybody? Amen on that one? God's providence or His foresight or His wisdom is really hard for us to understand, And that hard things for us are often good things in God's economy because of what they produce in us. Hard things for us are often good things in God's economy because of what they produce in us. And with that statement, I think it's right then for us to say that in this passage, we might discover that some of the medicine that tastes the worst to us has the best cure for us. Some of the medicine that tastes the worst for us has the best cure for us. And so Solomon lays out a number of better than statements in these Proverbs here in these verses. And some of the things that he calls better, we might look at and we might say, well, those are worse. But he's pointing out that hard things might ultimately be better for us than easy things. As parents, we understand this. If you have kids, you understand this. It isn't hard for us as adults to understand that broccoli is better health wise than licorice, right? You don't let your child, and if you do, let me give you a, a parenting tip. You don't let your child eat cupcakes for breakfast. Donuts are fine. <laughs> I don't know what. what. Uh, we want health. <laughs> that's what I have for breakfast this morning. We want healthy things. Sometimes hard things are better for us than the things that we love the most. In the first four statements, Solomon suggests that there is much to be gained by sober reflection on sorrow and death. Clearly, those are hard things. Look first with me at verse one. It says this, a good name, this is chapter seven, verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. So we start with this comparison here of ointment versus a good name. A little bit of context I think is important, but in the dusty communities of biblical times, scented oils or perfumes were valuable, right? Those were valuable things. And so we should be aware that perfume or ointment, which is what the verse calls it, could only be purchased by affluent people in Solomon's day. And so fine perfume was an indication of somebody's wealth. You were someone if you smelled good. And so Solomon starts with this bit of wisdom by saying this, a good name is better as a better legacy than the fragrance that's dispensed at the mall. He's saying your name is not attached to what you can purchase. Your name is not attached to your shoes or to your clothes or to your ointment or to your fragrance, even if everybody else in your world says it is. Solomon is pointing out to us that the character of your reputation is more valuable and enduring than the expensive scent of the perfume that you are wearing. A good name can go well beyond the grave, but the scent of perfume, it ceases to linger very quickly And we could say it like this, and I think for a lot of us who are parents, we're constantly trying to teach our kids this. We could say this, who you are is way more important than what you have or do not have. And so Solomon starts us off with something very practical this morning. And he says, whatever you do in your life, remember this, your legacy, irrespective of your money in the bank, the best legacy that you can leave your children is a good name. A good name is far better than any amount of riches, and Solomon calls us all to wear the cologne of good character here in the first verse. Maybe before we move on, I could ask us all an important question, and that is this. What kind of name are you making for yourself? What kind of name are you making for yourself? What do people know about you? What happens when your kids hear this question? Are you the daughter or the son of Enter your name. Solomon's first comparison here in verse 1 is actually setting up this question. And here's the question. Well, how can my name be good and last beyond me? His second comparison in verse 1 begins to answer that question in how God uses everything for His glory in God's providence. He says this, Just as a name is better than perfume, so the day of death is better than the day of birth. What does he mean there? Why Why is a death day better than a day of birth? None of us would rather attend the funeral than go and see a new baby that's just been born. What is Solomon saying here? Well, he's saying that funerals possess and reveal ultimate questions. They reveal issues and answers about life that birth never will. As many of you are aware, my dad passed away in December. We had a lady in our church in January, and this is closer to home for a lot of you. Jackie Hegathorn passed away in January. And at both of those memorial services, both of those funerals, It revealed more about life in those moments than their days of birth did, the day they were born. At both of their funerals, God was at the center and God was glorified in their days of death. Their funerals revealed certain ultimate issues about life. A funeral reveals what a person has lived a life for. Their funeral revealed what they invested in. A day of birth does not do that. Solomon continues on with his wise words in verses 2 through 4 with these words, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth meaning laughter or entertainment. So Solomon is really laying it on thick here, isn't he? He suggests now that it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party. Why? What is wrong with this guy? Here's the reality of what Solomon is saying. He knows that the day of death is better than the day of birth because, paradoxically, death has more to teach us about life than the day you were born does. Solomon suggests that we would be better off going to a funeral than to a party. This could be really confusing. It could be very difficult for some of us to hear, but just try and hold on with me for a couple of minutes here. Solomon is not, hear me clearly, denying that laughter and feasting have their place in life. He is enjoying life. He's told us to enjoy life through this book Jesus enjoyed life and parties. In fact, his first miracle when he started his earthly ministry was at a wedding where he turned water into wine. Hello. And even in Solomon's comparisons, Solomon assumes that it is good to celebrate, especially when we do it for God's glory. The banqueting table is one of the Bible's most positive images of divine blessing. And so don't hear that God is against enjoyment and that a good party is something God doesn't like when He's glorified. But even the happiest of celebrations tend to be fairly superficial, fairly surfacy. Why? Why do I say that? Well, think about this. If you've had kids... On the day of their birth, the general mood is excited and extensive. It's big, isn't it? You look at your kid and you think, well, this is going to be the next NBA All-Star. That's what we do to our children, right? The world is their oyster. They start walking when they're five and you're like, wow, they're advanced. (laughs) We think highly of our children, right? And I don't know about you, but I did not look at any of my children, all three of them, on the day that they were born and think about life's brevity. I did not think about human limitations at all when they were born. I let my hope to run high, which is good and right. I thought about all that they would do and how amazing they are. And again, it's natural and it's good that we would think about our kids that way. But at the house of mourning, on the other hand, the mood is thoughtful and the facts are plain. We are face-to-face with reality at a funeral. Going to a funeral or going to the cemetery is better in this sense. It teaches us to be wise in the way that we live and to prepare to die because it points to the reality of life and its brevity. I read something that I found really fascinating this week about old New England churches. If you were to visit an old church in New England, you would notice that many of them have cemeteries in their churchyard, which is not uncommon even around here. But along with that, you would notice that the windows of the sanctuaries at the back of the sanctuary towards the cemetery would be clear glass rather than stained glass. Here's what's interesting to me. They did this so that the pastor would have been able to see the graveyard as he preached. As he communicated his message to the congregation, a very serious message was being communicated to him. And that was this message that every Sunday, the people that he was preaching to would eventually fill that place or that cemetery. And ultimately, they would stand before God to be judged. And the point being this for all of us, death helps us to think about life. It makes us serious about our choices. And so hard things give us perspective on eternity better than parties do. The prayer of Moses is a good one. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 12, he said this, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And again, Solomon isn't being morbid here. I'm not trying to put you or make you depressed. This is where the Bible's going today. He is saying that life's difficulties have the potential to awaken a spiritual dimension in us. Sorrow makes us think about life, its meaning, and our priorities. A party rarely does this for any of us. Sorrow and suffering often bring us to God, while pleasure seldom does. Folly does not see the value in hard things. Wisdom sees the value in hard things because wisdom tells us that God is working there too. This for sure goes against the prevailing attitude of our culture, which does as much as it can to deny the reality of our mortality. Our world would tell us to pretend that we will live forever. Do not ever think about death, the world would tell us. We like to live, laugh, and love. That's it, right? Charles Spurgeon says it well in his writing. He says, I'm afraid that all the grace I've gotten out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. And affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. Alistair Bagg, who's a preacher, says it this way, In other words, life confirms what the Bible conveys that more spiritual progress will be made through failure, disappointment, hard times, and tears than will be discovered as a result of success, laughter, easy times, and trivialities. Again, in our world, this is hard to accept, but Solomon is saying that it would be folly to see the struggles in life as only bad. In God's economy, the wise person, in you and I wanting to be wise and live for God, we see the value in hard things in life. Why? Because hard things encourage an eternal perspective. Solomon moves on then in verses 5 through 14 with the reality that hard things develop godly character. Hard things encourage an eternal perspective, but they also develop godly character right now in the second section of This passage this morning, Solomon, reminds us that God loves us too much to let us remain as we are. Look at verses 5 and 6. They say this, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. So Solomon here, he's likening the meaningless praise and laughter of fools to the crackling of thorns under a pot. What does that mean? Well, branches of a thorn bush thrown on a fire, what they will do is they will flame up with rapid intensity, providing a short and a hot burn. If you need heat quickly, then this is, this is how you do it, but it's going to burn out really quickly. I think of all the times in Montana, and I've even done it around here, but where we were camping and trying to build a fire, and um, while we were camping, I just was piling up pine needle after pine needle on top of the fire. Anybody else do that? Why? Because I love 20-foot flames. (laughs) The explosive flames are awesome. But if you tried to cook your marshmallow over that, it's going to burn and taste like pine needles. (laughs) Thorn bushes and pine needles, they don't create a fire for slow, meaningful cooking. Solomon here is saying, using this illustration to say that the praise of fools, somebody that is foolish, it's quick and it's hot and it is fun for a minute, but it's gone quickly. It flames up, it dies out, and you need something else to stoke that fire. On the other hand, the rebuke of a wise man is good and healthy. It's hard, but it's good. Why? Because it can change your life forever. It actually reminds me of another proverb that Solomon wrote in Proverbs 27, verse 6. He says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Another translation would say, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Now, this doesn't mean that our friends should be mean just to be mean. But wise people point us to the truth of God's word, even if it's hard. Someone who cares enough to confront us biblically will tell us to get serious about life and death. And so for you and for me, listening to the constructive criticism of a godly friend, even if it's difficult, can save our soul. Wise people will teach us not to live for today, but to live for eternity. And again, it can be so hard to hear. But God uses hard things to grow us and our character. So Solomon is saying, be wise. Let me ask us some difficult questions maybe in this context one is this do you go to places where you can receive wise and life-giving correction do you read the bible do you listen to the christ-centered to christ-centered spirit-filled god-honoring preaching do you spend more time with people who are farther along in their spiritual journey than you are Are you around the wisdom of God in proportion at all to the amount of time you spend checking social media? When you hear something serious about spiritual things, even if it's tough for you to hear, don't laugh it off. Take it to heart. God is moving in hard things that godly people share with us. Solomon moves on now to verses 7-10 through and he says this, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this." Now, it would be really easy here at this point to say that Solomon's being negative. Maybe we read this and we think he just wants to get to the end of life because he says better is the end of a thing than its beginning. He has just talked about death and funerals. He's talked about somebody giving you a wise word that might hurt you. Is Solomon just flat out depressed with life? Is he trying to ruin our life? No. He isn't. Remember, he has a view of life where God is providential. He reigns above it all. And when Solomon talks about the end of something, what he's doing is he is pointing us to the result or to the outcome. The end is the end product. And so Solomon is saying there are many things in life, and this is true, that do not seem promising at the beginning, but patience is key because God is doing something and it will be good in the end. Here's the thing for us. The injustices of life cause many of us problems. Even those of us who are believers and they cause us problems especially when we don't allow God time to set them straight. And the reality is that we may never see what God is doing with some of the things that we struggle with until eternity. And so it's easy for us to become discouraged. It's easy for us to become depressed because oppression rules and it reigns in our country and throughout the world and even in our town. Government officials, politicians, pastors have all sold out. And this is the world that we live in. These realities can be very discouraging, can't they? But it's important for us to remember the one who will have the last word. Solomon is pointing us to the reality that wisdom, a person who is wise, knows that the end of God's work is better than its beginning. Maybe we can see this principle most clearly in God's plan of salvation. Go with me for a second, even just in your mind, to Bethlehem. What do you see there? We see a young mom with her older husband a humble stable, and a baby in a manger. Who would have ever imagined that this was the start of an empire? That the baby would become a king, and that by offering himself as a sacrifice, he would gain the forgiveness of sins for the people from all nations. Yet the end will be much better than the beginning. What began with the God of the universe coming as a baby will end with the consummation of His eternal kingdom. We're not even there yet. This is why Solomon emphasizes patience in verse 8. He says, The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Our Western world has lost its taste for long-haul living, haven't we? We want everything right now. Right now, we crave instant food, instant coffee, not instant coffee, bliss. <laughs> instant gratification, instant entertainment. We have computers in our pockets. We want it, and we want it now, and we want God to move as fast as the fast food drive through moves, maybe faster. How many times do I allow myself to be impatient? This is just me, when someone sits down Three seconds too long at a light that's green. And here's the thing that we need to know when we talk about our spiritual lives and what God is doing. Our providential, sovereign God uses patience. Waiting is one of the greatest teachers and trainers in godliness and maturity. God is interested in character development and he is building something very beautiful in all of it. If we don't work to see the full scope of God's plan, then we will find ourselves, as verse 10 says, looking backwards instead of seeing that God has given us today and He's doing something really important. Wisdom says that hard things are a part of God's plan because He's forming something in me. Solomon goes on now into verses 11 through 12, and I'm going to hit these real fast. It says this, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So Solomon has made multiple exhortations in, these passage, in this passage so far about life and death and about wisdom and folly and about waiting patiently to see what God will do, trusting the providence of God. He's teaching us the right way to look at life. And in these verses, all that he's really saying is this. Money can be a good thing, in that it offers some protections against the practical difficulties of daily life. And Solomon is saying, in the same way, wisdom is a good inheritance because it is a protection for our soul. It helps us deal with hard times in death, and it gives us a long-term view of what God is doing in the world, and true spiritual wisdom gives us spiritual vitality as long as we live. And when it comes time to die... Spiritual wisdom will lead us to everlasting life, and in that way, what Solomon is saying is wisdom is like currency. It's good to own. Solomon ends today's passage with these powerful words in verses 13 through 14, and they say this, consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked? There's the providence of God right there. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, and if you're going to underline anything, this little phrase is so powerful, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So Solomon ends today's passage by explaining why we cannot understand why God uses adversity or hard things and prosperity as he does. He says, God bends certain things and there is nothing that we can do about it. And he says, my advice to you is pretty straightforward. Wisdom says this, God has made the one as well as the other. There are crooked things that we cannot straighten and we must learn to believe and say this, God, you are good and you are God. You are powerful and I trust you. I believe in you, and even though I do not like some of the things that come from your hand, I think that I accept them with joy. God does not waste sorrow and adversity. Solomon is saying that it's silly to go out on a good day when it's sunny like it is today and say, oh, God has done a wonderful job today. And then to go out on the next day when it's cloudy and windy and it dumps a bunch of snow and the visibility is low, which has never happened to us here and hopefully it will never happen again, (laughs) but it'd be silly for us to go out and say, well, God must have taken a vacation today. That's not true. God is as much in control of the bad days when the weather stinks as he is in the sunny days. God is actually in control of the good days and the bad days in our lives and folly if we want to not be wise as believers says that God has no forethought. Wisdom stands on the providence of God even when it's terribly difficult for us. And I know that this is so hard to work out for us. It is because we want to be God. But this is truth from God's word and it gives us perspective that is essential to our life in this world. Wisdom means seeing that even in the hard things, God is at work. I want to be really, really clear with you. It does not mean that God likes sin. It does not mean that God is mean. It does not mean that God creates hardship for us. Wisdom believes that God is even using the hard things for our good and for His glory. You may be familiar with the story of Job. He Lost his health, his wealth, and his children, and he had it so bad that his wife, his own wife, said this to him in chapter 2, verse 9 of Job. She said, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. What a lady. We should, that should be part of premarital counseling. What a wife says to her husband. Sorry, but then then Job, don't, don't worry, there's plenty of instances in the Bible of men making equally or worse errors. Okay, then Job says to his wife in verse 10, you are talking like a foolish woman. Then he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? This is what the Bible says in Job chapter two, verse 10. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. He accepted the good and the bad and knew that God was building something in him. So, what do we do with this passage? We've seen in Solomon's words today that wisdom means seeing that God is using it all. The wise person would look at all of life and doesn't see any of it as meaningless. He sees the providence of God in his life. And if you're like me, and I don't know if you are, but you might be saying, well, I would like to experience wisdom in my life. I would love to see what God is doing and know that he has a plan, and I would love to know that I can trust him. I would love to see how the hard things in my life are being used for my good, but how? How do I know the wisdom of God in my life? Well, there are a number of things for sure, and we've touched on a number of them today. Read your Bible, pray, willingly receive the rebuke of a wise person. But there is one main thing that we all need to know that is the ultimate experience of God's wisdom that I want all of us to have this morning. The worship team can come on up. How do I know the wisdom of God? Here's what we should take with us. The wisdom of God is expressed in Jesus Christ. When we go to the Word, which we do every Sunday, and when you guys read your Bibles on your own, we should be looking for two different things always. One, what does this passage tell me about me? And two, what does this passage tell me about who God is? Well, the Bible was written for us To pull back the curtains and reveal to us the one who sits at the center of all things. The Bible doesn't just reveal God in His position and in His power and in His plan. The Bible reveals to us His character as well. God is creator, controller, and king of all kings. He is boundless in authority and in His wisdom and in His power and in His providence. And, and this is key, He is slow to anger, abounding in love Merciful, tender, and he is kind, and he is forgiving, and he is long-suffering, and he himself is grace. And the Bible also tells us about you and I and that we are the creation of this wonderful God. But sin has made us fallen. Fallen. We were created to be dependent on Him, but sin does something to us and it makes us rebellious and it makes us think that we're better gods than He is. Sin makes us quest for independence and self-sufficiency. Sin makes you and I love what is foolish while thinking that we are wise. Sin makes us think we are capable of what we are not. Sin makes us think we are righteous when our hearts are corrupt. And the Bible lovingly confronts us with everything that we are not, so that we can run after everything that we could be. And today, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, what it's doing is forcing us to face our foolishness and failure so that we can run to the one who is wisdom. And I say this a lot, but the Bible calls us to do what we cannot do. And here's the beauty of all of this. God's Word does not say, Be wise. Believe in the providence of God and then good luck. You're on your own. God's word does not say, sorry, God's word does not leave us where we are helpless. God's word always introduces us to the one who gives us absolutely everything that we need. And this is what the gospel is all about. The cross makes a way for the one who is everything that you and I are not. And he becomes for us everything we need. We need the wisdom of God. And so, what should I do? Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. That's the answer. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 says this about Jesus and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. And this is who Christ is, who became to us wisdom. Do you notice that? He is wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. This is God's wisdom. It is found in Jesus Christ. You cannot find this from Oprah. You cannot find this on a Barnes & Noble bookshelf. Those places are going to offer you philosophy and Eastern mysticism. You cannot find this in religion. You find God's wisdom for life in Jesus Christ. He himself, 1 Corinthians says, is our wisdom and our righteousness. I came across this verse yesterday, but it comes from 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. And it's at this part in 2 Chronicles where God's people, they didn't know what to do. The situation was beyond them. And they said this at the end of 2 Chronicles 20, verse 12. They said, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Jesus is the wisdom of God. And I would imagine that in life, we would ask ourselves, if it's hard, I don't always know how to proceed. And today, wisdom is found in believing in God's goodness and providence and fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. And Maybe you say today that I want to see what God is doing in my life. I want to walk in wisdom. Ecclesiastes would tell us that wisdom believes that God is working in all things. And our job is to fix our eyes on Christ. Come to God like this. Say, Lord, I am foolish. Give me your wisdom to see and follow your truth. Give me your wisdom, Jesus. Rule in my heart. Lead my life. I trust you. The wisdom of God is found in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. God, thank you that you are good and that you love us. And that, God, even in the hard things, you're drawing us to yourself. That You're creating character in us. That you didn't just begin a good work, but you're faithful to complete it in us, God. We trust you. We love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, that your wisdom is in Christ. And we can have that in a relationship with him. In Jesus' name, amen.